0: Discipline must be maintained. Otherwise, civilization would collapse. Javert, Les Miserables, 2018, PBS Adaptation. uprisings and revolutions are a type of collapse or potential collapse in that they represent an existing social or political order coming under threat. Uprisings tend to be smaller in scale and usually more local and targeted. So you might have like an uprising against an unfair landlord, for example, or you might have one against the local police. In the case of an uprising, the social order may be somewhat threatened, but not necessarily brought down. Whereas bringing it down is exactly what a revolution seeks to do. Both uprisings and revolutions can be either successful or failures or a combination of both. And in any of those cases, much can be learned from them. One story in both classical literature and popular culture that involves a failed uprising is the novel Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, which over the years has been adapted many times, most famously as a Broadway musical and most recently as a 2018 miniseries on PBS. Les Miserables is one of the most beloved stories of all time. But my guest today and I both agree that this is largely for reasons that are different than what we would personally prefer. And we think this is largely because of the Broadway musical. Not that there's any objectively wrong reason to love a story. But by the same token... I too am allowed to love a story for my own reasons, and it's kind of natural to wish that others could share those reasons as well. Well, my guest today shares those reasons. His name is Jim Carrey, and he's the primary host of a podcast called The Left is Dead, a podcast that looks at current events, politics, and culture through a leftist lens. Finally, a quick word on spoilers. So I don't think the usual spoiler etiquette applies for a novel that's been out for over 150 years. But just to be safe, I will say that my guest and I do discuss specific events that occur in the novel, but as long as you've seen the musical or one of the other adaptations, there's nothing here that'll surprise you. If you've had no exposure to the story whatsoever, then yeah, I guess you could say there will be spoilers. Hope you enjoyed the interview, and we are here with Jim Carrey from *The Left Is Dead*. Jim, thank you for coming on today. Could you start by introducing yourself, your podcast, and what it's about?
1: Sure. All right. Um, I am Jim Carrey. Uh, I am the main host of The Left is Dead, I suppose. I used to be a foreign policy independent journalist. I focused on Turkey. But that kind of dried up after the Russia propaganda stuff of 2016. And I went on to start The Left is Dead, which is me, a series of friends, sometimes random people, sometimes interesting guests, to just sort of Look at everything our beautiful political system has been throwing up on us for the last couple of years uh and we don't we started out as an interview show, but at this point we're all over the place. we're looking at culture, we look at music, books, whatever,
0: yeah, and I should uh say to the audience that I'm actually a big fan of your podcast, and it's through listening to it that I think that we came to meet on I think Bill's Twitter at first. I'm not sure how we bumped into each other. Did you can't remember yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that often works out that way. But we met somehow, and we just kind of started tweeting each other and then private messaging. And we decided to discuss what is one of your favorite works, I think, which is, and I know I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Les Miserables. Yeah. Or whatever. Les Miserables. So I want to start by clearing up what is a very common misconception, I think, which is that. A lot of people, like including even people who have seen the musical or like one of the movie adaptations, I don't know if people who have read it would make this mistake, but people who have seen the musical or the movie, and certainly people who have not, they often say that it takes place during the French Revolution, but it actually doesn't, or at least not the French Revolution that people usually mean when they say French Revolution. And the other thing is that not everyone realizes there were actually multiple revolutions in France during a particularly chaotic period in the 18th and 19th century. And here's where I feel like someone like you who has read the novel, and just with your knowledge, would be better equipped than a lot of people to explain to our audience exactly when does Les Mis, that's what I'm going to call it from now on, Les Mis, when does Les Mis take place and which historical event actually occurs in the story? I'll let you start there.
1: Yeah, that is a very big misconception. Um, I think all French revolutions and rebellions and revolts blend into one thing for people. And we also don't talk about one certain year of 1848 because that's, you know, too much socialism going on there. But the events of Les Mis takes place and is spanning a lot of time. Honestly, it's the end of the Napoleonic era. It may be under the directory before Napoleon, but it ends in its climax at the June Rebellion of 1832. This comes quite a few years after the French Revolution because the Napoleonic Wars have happened. France has been at war for about 25 years. The revolutions following the original French Revolution in the late 1700s, 1790s was, this is where you think of Robespierre, the guillotines, the terror, and all these things. Now, after that, when the coup against Robespierre took place and then Napoleon, there was a reaction to that where that type of thinking was pushed to the side, where you did not talk about what happened. You didn't. The Jacobins were gone, which was the political party, well, the political club that Robespierre belonged to. Um, Napoleon was originally a Jacobin, but he played it down. But the Jacobins were gone. The good liberals had taken over. It was peaceful times, except after Napoleon was gone, the royal family, the Bourbon, the Bourbon family comes back, the branch of the royal family in France, They come to take power. This is Louis' son, I believe. So Louis XVI is obviously the one we're all all familiar with, who gets his head cut off, and his wife, Marie Antoinette. So Louis, his son comes back, and in a way that uh, I believe Talleyrand describes as they have learned nothing and forgotten nothing, the Bourbon family starts immediately smashing dissent and trying to restore the old order. And that does not work out so well. Two years before the events of the climax of Les Mis, you have this other rebellion, which would be the Three Glorious Days. This was a July revolt that turned out to topple the king at the time, and his cousin comes in as a more quote-unquote liberal king, and this brings in now the Second French Republic. So now you're at basically what was the Second French Revolution here in 1830. Two years later, it's tough. There's a cholera epidemic. Uh, A lot of the constitution has been overwritten. A lot of the monetary policy by liberals has kind of been thrown out the window by the king. And it's supposed to be a constitutional monarchy, but it's not working out that way. That would be the events everyone thinks of in Les Mis as far as placing it in history. Now, this revolt was much closer to the original revolution ideologically than the other ones before it had been. Because now there was these defunct Bonapartists, and there was Republicans again, And there was more proto-socialist types who were suddenly too young. And Hugo mentions this in the novel. These people, these kids were too young to remember Robespierre and the terror. So, you know, like um, all of Mary's and his friends are in college. They don't remember the terror and they idolize it, which is actually highlighted in a moment uh, at Lamarck's funeral, which we'll talk about him in a minute, I'm guessing. But at Lamarck's funeral, where somebody calls for Lamarck to go to the Pantheon and Lafayette who's still alive, leading the National Guard up until that revolt, actually. And they call it for Lafayette to go to the lamppost. So this is a return on the accepted liberals who had been allowed to come back after the French Revolution and Napoleon, which was like Lafayette. Um, He's allowed to come back, and those types of people are suddenly being scorned by the younger revolutionaries prior to 1848. This is sort of the pre socialist type revolution but it's getting much closer to looking like that and it's getting much closer to the era when you'll see like marx and all these guys appear
0: so now that we have some of that historical context let's dive right into the story itself and some of its characters javert as everyone knows kills himself in les Mis, and i don't think it's a spoiler to say that, i mean his story has been out there forever um yeah and it's clear that the reason he kills himself is because on one hand, he is very much a control freak with this dualistic worldview in which law and order is this sacred thing, right? It's pure. And anything that strays outside of his worldview is wicked and evil. And so when Valjean shows him mercy, that shatters his worldview. And he just he can't cope with that cognitive dissonance. And so there are a couple of things I want to talk about with you in relation to this. One is, uh, you've said before in our conversations that the United States is a country of Javert's. Could you explain and elaborate on that for our audience?
1: All right. So Javert serves in the French police and mil- basically the police and like prison guards. You know, I guess they'd be the same thing at the time. And what he, he's serving from at least sometime when Valjean goes to prison. For, you know, stealing some bread, and he continues to try to escape and keeps getting sentences added on. But Javert has been working for the French police, in some capacity for at least four governments that he's been enforcing the rules of, all of them vastly different: an imperial one, uh, two kings, and a directory that kind of took power from Robespierre, and possibly under Robespierre himself during the terror. So, who knows when he came in. The man has been enforcing the rules, but the rules are constantly changing. Um, I think right now, with the way our country is, and with the way we might not be equipped to like see the scientific method done in public, people have such a strong adherence to the rules. You know, I think they are actually doing damage to themselves, Not they're not jumping in a river, you know. But they're doing damage to themselves just psychically, I think, by essentially having such a, an anger and like a confusion, these contradictory beliefs where it's you know, I think of now is the fights over things like masks and the fights over things like the vaccine, obviously, are the big ones, right? Where we have people who, even though the rules are shifting, they just won't, they can't admit that to themselves. They can't admit that out loud. And I think that they we all are lacking in understanding of each other because we think that there are these moral black and whites like this, especially with the pandemic over the last couple of years. I think that has really shown it to be where, you know, obviously this is a generalization, but I mean, you have these sort of uh, technocratic liberal like commenters on social media sort of just, well, you didn't get the vaccine, that's what he gets, you know, when they read some story about something tragic. And it's just uh, the conservatives obviously they love watching people get punished. I don't need to explain any examples of that. But there's this, just these attitudes that I think both of us have, and that they're, they're all dehumanizing us to a point, almost as Javert, where you you just believe in enforcing your team's version of what's right, no matter what damage it does to you psychically. So I want to go a little deeper
0: into that because I think that's really interesting. So yeah, so Javert has this desperate need to cling to and protect his worldview. And uh, one could say that psychologically speaking, the disruptions that were occurring in France when Les Mis takes place would make someone like Javert really just cling even more desperately to his worldview. And I think that's kind of why his resilience becomes so flimsy in the face of contradictions, you know, via Valjean's behavior. And given what you have said about the U.S. and given that we also seem to be going through not quite on the same level of France at the time, but also a period of relative chaos and consistent disruptions. One that I personally don't see us coming out of like anytime soon. Do you think there's also a risk that we may be seeing people in the U.S. who, like Javert, essentially have these emotional and mental breakdowns as the U.S., their beloved country, increasingly no longer resembles like whatever imagined version of it that they cling to in their minds.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing is that's, you know, part of why I started my podcast was originally, uh, my first, the main co-host, I guess the original co-host and I, uh, Jake Anderson, another writer, another former journalist. We started that things because everyone's grip on reality is suddenly, you know, there's no objectivism, right? There's nothing that's true, nothing that's false anymore. And that worries me because it means people can really justify anything in their head. I will say there may be one excuse. I want to take a little quick side note here. There may be one like class reading you can do of, um, Javert. He does help get Marius home. Um, and Marius is the son of like a former noble of the, of the actual Ancien regime. And his father was a, like a baron under Napoleon. So, You could just read it as Javert helping the rich kid go home. Um, But either way, (laughs) I think that we do cling to our worldviews. You know, you see these sort of, um, I I see this attitude by both sides where, again, punishment seems to be the order of the day, right? There's these angry types of responses on both sides, whether it, you know, I I, I don't agree with people who don't get, you know, you should get vaccinated, but I can't, I'm not going to call you a murderer or tell you that you're like, you know, hey, you're endangering me. It's like. Yeah, you are, but there's nothing I can say like that that's going to change your mind. And I think the, the idea is that this country sees everything as it, it's a ha- this country's a hammer, and it sees everything as a nail. And I think that's boiled down to our individual spots. And I think that you are seeing the sort of mental disconnect at this point. You are seeing more people suffer suffer from mental illness. You are seeing people who have these breakdowns now. I mean, look at what was January 6th. What was this explosion of anger over like conspiracies and things? You know what was. Uh, What is a lot of this stuff? I mean, these outbursts aren't coming, you know, they don't just seem like they're coming faster and faster. They're coming faster and faster. We're entering into what is probably going to be a recession right now. There's going to be more of it. And I think as long as we continue, if we continue focusing on who are we going to punish from the street level, it does nothing. And I I think that that will also be part of what drives their psychosis.
0: Yeah, very well said.
1: I wanted to take a moment
0: to uh, maybe talk about Victor Hugo for a minute, uh, who was obviously the author of Les Mis. So, you know, when he was alive, he was very much loved by the public. And when he died, uh, I read that his funeral attracted more than two million people and that the French government feared like a almost like a popular uprising, kind of in the same way that the death and funeral of Lamarck in the story there were those questions oh what's going to happen now is there going to be an uprising is the funeral going to spark an uprising you know I'm, i kind of felt like there was oh, a yeah. parallel there and it's very clear from the story and i keep saying the story because i can't say the book i haven't read the book i've only seen a number of adaptations but it's clear that hugo believed very strongly about the moral injustice of poverty and of class inequality and um but there seems to be some disagreement about what his victor hugo's own politics were you know and um this confusion is probably not helped by the fact that his own politics evolved throughout his life as i understand it
1: yeah that is basically it
0: yeah and um you know the, the Les Mis, the story obviously has inspired a lot of leftists radicals and revolutionaries throughout the world i was just curious if that was the case with you as well as a leftist do you did you were you inspired by Les Mis, like, during your political journey in some way? And and also, if you, uh, if you happen to know, and you don't have to talk about this part, but how would you personally describe Victor Hugo's
1: politics? So, me personally, this book, all right, yes. Um, I read this book in prison the first time, when I was young. But it was just a part of something, as I was reading, I was also reading Marx and, Lenin and all this other stuff. Um, but when I got out, things started to happen, like, Occupy. And I saw let me put it like I consider myself like a former Marius a kind of a dumbass because Marius is like a bonapartist he's a royalist he's a republican he's all over the place too he's like Hugo um (laughs) so I saw these sort of popular things spring up and every time I would see them sort of become more like the July revolution where they were kowtowed and they were put into this you know liberal framework where they were well, what will allow you to participate or, you know, Occupy dissipates and just goes off and becomes nothing. And uh, a lot of Black Lives Matter and stuff like the resistance to Donald Trump or whatever by the Democrats becomes really corporatized. Um, yeah, nobody's dying in like, you know, in 1832, but movements are definitely being killed. The Democratic Party is definitely doing a good job of doing it. I think that that's just seeing it go on like this. I think and we'll probably talk about it a bit more, but I think it, that this is, is a cycle. And I've told this to, I told this to Milo Yiannopoulos and, you know, I <laughs> I told him that this is a historic cycle and eventually one side bre- is, our side will break this cycle. And the question is, what is the world going to look like when we get there? Right. And at the point that I'm at now, I've gone from like, I feel like what is the merriest to closer to the Valjean, where it's just, I'm trying to make the effort at, my level to do what I can, whereas Marius and the friends of the ABC, the other revolutionaries in the book uh, sort of they see a better world, and again, a failure is always something to learn from. We learn from the Soviet Union, we learn from Cuba, we, you know any like, shortcomings they have, we learn from them. We learn from all types of different places where leftists have made huge changes. you know So I think that failure is not necessarily a bad thing and this is a historic cycle the question is just man when does you know when does the cycle stop because it's going to be worse every time it fails and then hugo himself hugo started out as a royalist he becomes a republican like a liberal republican he becomes a nuisance for the royal families when they come back so he goes to live in england england like there's notes in the parliamentary debate about Kicking him out of England because he refused to learn English, and he was just pissing them off, and becoming a actual like political talking point between them and France. And then he goes back to France finally before he dies. But he, he's um, you know, he's sitting in the National Assembly, and then by that point, he is a radical Republican. He's probably closer towards a socialist. Uh, he loves Abraham Lincoln. I mean, in the novel, he talks. He mentions like John Brown. He mentions Lincoln. He mentions the Union troops. He's he's on it when he's, he's on it when he's the gone, you know, he, he knows what's up, but he starts out as a royalist and that's because Hugo is the son of, a, you know, a privileged family. Like he's in a privileged position when he's born. It's just, it's what you'd expect to happen. His politics are just sort of basic when he does, he's never had to think about them before. And then as time goes on and he sees what happens in France from 1790s onward, you know, he sees the history of his country. He sort of falls back into this uh, position where he's like, he never had to think about it before. And then suddenly, like, he had to think about politics, and they they just suddenly, as he learned his own history, it became more radical. That's a really interesting description.
0: It makes me feel like the character that he's actually closest to is Marius.
1: Yeah, kind of. That's what I was going to say, yeah, earlier, is I wanted to say that he is like Marius. Marius is just eh on politics when you first meet him. He finds out, you know, he's going to college, he defends, like, the liberal nobility. Then he finds out his dad who had had to abandon him basically so he would get his grandfather's fortune. So Marius, you know, his dad leaves, his dad's been stripped of his Napoleonic title. Marius goes, you know, as he's going to school, he becomes a Bonapartist and which there's some admiration from Hugo and for Bonaparte. You can see it in that book. Trust me. You can probably see some of it in the musical and everything else too, honestly. But there's some admiration for Bonaparte, And I think that's just a sign of, you know, the changing times. And again, yeah, Marius isn't somebody who had to think about it. He was a good royalist because his grandfather who raised him was a royalist. And then he was a Bonapartist because his, you know, his, he found out his dad was a Bonapartist. Then he becomes a Republican and ends up at the barricade kind of just because he thinks he won't see his girlfriend again. So I, he is kind of like a Hugo. Yeah. There is a lot of parallels and yeah, the, the Hugo's just you know, you're born in a place of privilege. You don't question your politics until you have to, right?
0: Yeah, and actually I want to kind of build off of that very last point just made of you don't kind of engage with politics until you have to. And I also want to touch upon what you said earlier about in terms of like like Occupy and like radical thought getting co-opted into a liberal framework. And here I want to kind of compare some of the different versions of the story. So obviously there's the core work, the novel, and there've been numerous adaptations I think for most people, they're most familiar with uh, the stage musical, and maybe the movie version of the stage musical because they adapted the musical <laughs> into a movie yeah. as well. But there are also like non-musical movie versions. Like there's one starring uh, Liam Neeson and Claire Danes, which I actually personally am really fond of. And there was recently from a couple of years ago a PBS miniseries version, which is actually my favorite, personally my favorite adaptation. So I want to talk about like when I watch. The PBS version, or like the Liam Neeson version, and this is just my personal response. But I get so like devastated and heartbroken by the sheer misery and suffering. This is where I feel like the PBS version excels. Um, it really—it's certainly much bleaker than the musical, which I'm gonna kind of come back to in a second. But you—you really just kind of feel the the misery of of poverty, and at least when I watch it, I just want to like freaking go out and. (laughs) just like those kids in in the story. Uh, I wanna like start an uprising of some sort, you know, I just get so angry. Right. But clearly that's not the dominant response of most folks who like go to see the stage musical. And I think there are a couple of reasons for this. One thing I think is, and this is why I have a problem with the musical, is that it makes suffering pretty because it beautifies it. And obviously you want a story to be, you want any sort of work of art to be accessible, right? And uh, at the end of the day, you know, for better or worse, all these mediums, all these different vehicles of art are commercial works that need to make money. And so, you know, you got to make the story appealing. You got to make people, you got to make it entertaining. So that's, you know, I get that part. But I do feel like the musical over romanticizes and beautifies suffering, suffering that should be ugly. It should make you uncomfortable because that's what real life suffering is like. But honestly, like, and, and I actually saw the musical when I was younger. Um, I, it's funny, because, you know, when it comes to Broadway musicals, I feel like I have seen, I can, I can count on one hand how many Broadway musicals I've seen, and I've never paid for any of them. It was always like somebody else paying for me, which is what made it possible to go see. And so Les Mis is one of those kinds of, you know, expensive Broadway musicals, where you go into the auditorium, and most people kind of you know, represent a certain kind of demographic. Right. And, and how often do you see people walk out of that show and be like, oh my God, this is so unjust. We must do something. No, they're more likely going to be like, oh, those costumes are beautiful. On oh, that actress, her voice was so lovely. Right. They're like,
1: you know, yeah. as they, as... well, that's what Broadway is. Right. I mean, look at Hamilton. That's the newest popular one like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And so they're
0: sitting around sipping their expensive wine and their expensive restaurant or whatnot and just talking about this. It's kind of like it's so removed from for me and I'm sure for you, too, what this story is really about. And so I'm wondering if you had just kind of this is not like I understand it's not really a really specific question, but did you have any thoughts on that? So like what seems to be this divide between really what the original story is trying to do and this kind yeah. of ultra commodified versions that we have of it now?
1: Um yeah absolutely because the the poverty gets made um sort of a set piece right it's a background to oh, look at the beauty in the poverty which is like two teenagers in love i should say like a 19 year old in love with like a 14 year old by the way if you read the book so dwell on that people but um the book is so much darker right these uh think of the Thénardiers the landlord family who takes Cosette from um Fantine the poor woman who dies under valjean's care back when he's you know hiding as the mayor um i think that like those are dark characters they are dark characters they try to murder valjean on several occasions they try he tries to murder valjean again in the sewers i he tries to murder him with a hot coal iron in the robbery that you sort of see for like about 30 seconds in the movie There is the daughter of the Thenardiers who is just, uh, you have Eponine who loves Marius and ends up dying and, you know, nobody cares where she is. You have, and it's not even stated in the musical, her brother is this little Gavroche, this little, you know, street child where it's like, uh, this is a child again, who dies at the barricades, who trying, you know, but his whole life before that is just spent scrounging up food, stealing and looking for some way to get money. And, screaming in the theaters to piss off the wealthy. There's a lot of these characters. Look at Fantine. I mean, people remember I Dreamed a Dream all the time, but this is like, you know, this is a song after she's like sold her teeth. You know, this is a dark subject matter and it's a depressing subject matter, honestly. But the end is, again, it's supposed to inspire you to like, this continues. This fight's not over, you know? And I think that Obviously, Hugo has the benefit of hindsight, but you have this. It's it's liberalism. It's you know it's big city. It's urban liberalism. I, I'm sorry to sound like some type of Trump populist or something, but there is this urban like professional liberalism that they like their politics just as much as a lot of leftists do. They like their politics to be performance. In fact, we all do. That that's the one thing. Everyone's politics are performance in this country. It's posting. It's buying the right product it's shooting the right product in your backyard and putting that video on TikTok it's you know it's make sure you purchase the right coffee whatever so everything is performance like that and i think that's the, the important thing is the liberals are just doing a much more expensive performance because they have the money so yeah it really does wipe out the darker elements it wipes out what's important about the book and it wipes out you know a lot of the things that make it relevant this is an incredible book It gives you a good history of the of France from the First Republic all the way through to 1832 and sort of onward, too, because Hugo does live past that. So it's has a lot more. I mean, these characters are a lot darker, but they're also a lot more human, you know, than they are is just these sort of portraits in the musical.
0: And here's where I want to kind of put in a couple of words for the PBS miniseries. So, again, though, I haven't read the book. um, I do know it's and I really want to. But given that it's very long, you know, my sense was that probably we would see more of some of the characters, which in the musical, you know, only appear for a short period, or that we don't really know their full story. What I really appreciated about the PBS miniseries is, like, Fantine gets a whole couple of episodes dedicated to her, and we we get what like I would call her origin story, you know, or her backstory, and we see like just how easy it is for anyone to like fall into her position or like maybe like the modern version of it. But you know, we don't really, I mean, yes, the musical like turns her story into this big sob story and and people cry and whatnot. But again, like they don't really do anything about it. Right. But the musical, I mean, excuse me, not the music, the, the PBS show, like in showing her backstory, it really kind of fleshes her out much more as a, as a human being who made like very honest, reasonable mistakes that any young person that we have all made, honestly, you know, but that in an unjust system, could make you just completely fall through the cracks and yeah have you end up literally selling your hair your teeth your body right and so now i'm glad that the yeah that i'm glad you, you mentioned that the book really kind of devotes more time to her because it's because the pbs series does too and, and that's what i really kind of appreciated about it
1: yeah there's the whole one whole book of the book i mean there's sub books within it because hugo always published things in pieces but one of these whole sub books is about fantine and yeah there's this whole incredible story where, you know, she's young, she kind of has money and she's, she can afford to just sort of, you know, wander around the French countryside and look for boys and she meets one and he gets, you know, they hang out for the summer as, as she, and gets her pregnant and he's out, right? And she has no money and she has to leave her child with these innkeepers who she assumes are good people. That's why, you know, but they're writing her letters constantly that they need more money because, you know, she's sick, that she needs more food, whatever and it's all just because you know this is a woman who in uh, this sort of again the royal families are back catholic conservatism is back in the country so she lives in a society that's never going to you know give any type of there's obviously no social safety net or anything like that for anybody there may be like price controls and things like that but there is no such thing as like a social safety net in any meaningful way yet and this is yeah like you said it's an honest mistake it's a mistake plenty of us have made i I've had a child unplanned. This is life. And I think that you do miss out on a lot. And that's why I think a lot of people like see the musical and just kind of look at her as like a sort of lazy, like saintly Catholic figure. Right. But she's not explained well enough. And I don't think that you get the whole picture of who she is. She's only there for the first third of the, you know, the musical she's kind of, her narrative is tossed aside how she got where she is is tossed aside. She's in the factory one day, you know? So like, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and cause like this magical
0: effect among people who watch the musical, even just a musical, we'll stay on that level for a minute. It would be to make people realize, you know, I think that like the typical response is, even if they're very moved by musical, they'll cry or whatever, you know, wipe their tears or walk out and it's just whatever, you know, move on. If I could wave a magic wand, I would want people to just really in their gut understand just how many Millions of fanteens are out there like right now, like every minute, right? It's not just some nice old story classic, you know, where this happens and okay, well, that's a shame, but okay, well, it's a nice musical and let's move on. It's like this is happening right now. And do you care? <laughs> and do you want to do something about that? If I could wave a magic wand, I would want to evoke that kind of transformative emotional experience within people if you can wave a magic wand and make people feel a certain way after they experience the story in whichever format, the book, musical, movie, whatever, uh, what would that be for you?
1: To me, I think what people should take in is both a message of, uh, again, the message of like the sort of cyclical nature of the revolution and what will happen. Sometimes there will be victories, sometimes there will be losses. And that, combined with you know the sort of life wisdom of Valjean that makes him an ever forgiving ever compassionate person right this is a man of a character that he's never once tried he hasn't brought harm to anyone I mean he was thief or whatever but you know early on in the book he's kind of given this pass by the bishop he's given silver to take with him and he just this man goes on to like give everything he can so like Belgen is just giving, he's getting a shit ton of money, giving it away, and like, he saves Marius is just, you know, he sees this as like, not everyone has to die here, there's reason for some of this to live on. And I think that people just should walk away with both that, the sense of humanity with a more well-guided sense of revolution, you know, revolutionary ideas. Don't walk out and, you know, start setting up a barricade or anything, obviously, but if you want to, you know, you should walk away with some type of revolutionary zeal do not just boil it down to a love story because I think that's ridiculous. That was not what the book was. It was a lot of things. It was it an was attempt to explain the entire political, social, and like, you know, real economy of Paris and France in general. You know, that's a big task and that's why this book's giant.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that like, like the Broadway producers looked at the story said, how can we make the most money on it, out of this? And the answer was a very clear, make it a love story. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, they got Hamilton made finally, at least. Speaking of Hamilton, said that that that's a whole other topic. I don't want to get us uh too uh, um off the tracks yeah, here, yeah. but I, I could totally I I yeah, I could totally say stuff about Hamilton. But so I think this is a good place to now let you talk a little bit about what you think like some of the lessons of Les Mis might be. And that could be like, you know, political lessons. It could be lessons related to just society in general or just any kind of things. Because I know you'd mentioned like previously, like lessons that could be learned from a failed revolt, I think is what you said to me before.
1: Right. And I think that they you go know, any, I think in reading any real like um, sort of leftist, not just a theorist, but a leftist leader from the past couple of centuries, you know, whether it's Castro, Lenin, Che, whoever, you have these people who learned from the mistakes of those before them. Marx himself, you know, he says that socialism relied on the bourgeois revolution happening, which was the, the first French revolution. That was, you know, primarily professionals and artisans and things like that who came to the forefront of that. It was not a proletariat because that didn't exist yet. There was no urban proletariat. There was no unified peasantry or anything. So I think it is, you learn from failures. You know, we look at what we learned from, hopefully we've learned something from Occupy, uh, as we talked about earlier. Like, hopefully we've learned something from that because if this is going to go poorly again, which all signs say it is, you know, I think that we have to learn from our past mistakes and that is even a failure is not useless. I don't think it's useless to learn about the Soviet Union. I don't think it's useless to learn about... even like the weather underground or something. And I don't agree with them because I don't think they did anything. But I mean, like, it's to see what tactics work and what, what works where, you know, because the left's job can't be to just try to hold on to the things they already had, because at that point, you're just a conservative. And I think that this is a way that, you know, learn from the past, be aggressive too, you know, try to put something together. I know this is very hard in this day and age, but just, you know, don't overstep it. Otherwise, you'll get the National Guard unfortunately. And that, that seems to happen more and more now too, especially in the legal abdu- abductions and things like this. But yeah, I think that the lesson should be is, you know, just learn from it, learn from what happens. And again, learn the compassion of Valjean, learn the humanity of Fantine, right? Learn these things that will make you, and I, again, I, this is going to be unpopular with the left or whatever, but then you're, it's weird to the left, I'm a Catholic. So this holds a little bit more like sway for me you know this book kind of means a little bit like more like in that sense to me but I think it's just go forward and give like your all to like who you come across uh, in your daily life and also as you're trying to do that try to make a world better for all of you at the same time be half Marius half Valjean I guess temper each other out you don't have to live like a hermit but you should be careful so what would be then one very
0: specific, because I think you were kind of giving some broad principles there, but what's one very specific lesson uh, you would like people on the left to learn and assimilate and practice?
1: You know, at the end of the day, like the leftists in, you know, the ostensible leftists in this book are college kids who are hanging out at a cafe all day and drinking. You know, one of, th- one of them sleeps drunk through the whole barricade situation. There are workmen at the barricades. They are there, but there's a moment that falls short. You know, the people people don't rise up with them as they're expected to. And I think it is a matter of making sure that if you're building some type of revolutionary organization, you need to have a genuine coalition of the working class from all different types of cultures and backgrounds. And that's going to be tough for some people, but I think this is where the compassion comes in. You have to meet people where they are. You have to understand you know people don't like understand a working class vernacular like you're not allowed to use that right there's certain terms you aren't allowed to use it. Unfortunately, people just use and they've used them for decades, or there are certain attitudes people have about certain things where it's yeah it's kind of backwards, but I mean, meet people where they are because there's this shared class interest that I think no matter what, if you improve these economic matters this idea of having to be divided on all these other goofy cultural lines, it, it doesn't become relevant because there is no one who thinks someone is taking something from them. There is no need to have this enemy in the other sector of the working class. You know, Try with everybody, basically. Try to do something with everyone. Try to meet everyone where they're at because that's the only way we're going to do this Otherwise, I don't know what's going to happen. But eventually the other side, if they're successful, is going to end up with the state forces on their side. Speaking of that, what would you say to someone who's listening to this, you know,
0: and um, most likely those who are listening are familiar with one of the overarching themes of this podcast, which is collapse. So if someone were listening now saying, yo, that's all very great and interesting and everything, but what does this have to do with collapse, man? How would you respond to them?
1: look, if you don't have anything built up, if we're all completely atomized, we're all completely alienated, we've already all commodified each other into, you know, swiping or liking or whatever, man, like there's, you're taking the humanity out of, this is what leads to the collapse. This is why we can't find a solution. This is everything. The way we think of each other is everything. This is why we can't get anywhere because we aren't seeing each other as classes where there's no class consciousness in the United States. I don't know if, you know, you probably have listeners outside the country like we don't talk about cl- everyone's middle class, right? Everyone's middle class here. There is no working class. There is poor and there is middle class and poor is just probably someone who's stealing from the safety net. That's how people feel here. So that the, the collapse is going to come because we'll never be able to talk to each other. We'll never be able to like do anything about it. And by the time we figure out that we need to work together, it's going to be too late.
0: Indeed. So, Jim, at this time, I'd like to ask you to go ahead and share more details about your podcast, maybe any social media accounts that you run that you want to plug, just anything like that at all. Go for it.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you can actually find just everything about the podcast and all our social media and stuff at leftisdad.com. There's no the. Didn't get that site on time and it now sells like Let's Go Brandon shirts or something. But yeah, any information you want is leftisdead.com. And we do a lot of different stuff. We got a Discord. We got um, places where we we watch movies in Discord every once in a while. We obviously make a podcast where we drop stuff from like our analysis of just like a short pamphlet to interviews to movies and reviewing them, whatever it is. So if you're interested in any like left takes on culture and stuff like that, you know, check it out.
0: All right, Jim Carrey from The Left is Dead, thank you so very much for being on the show today and for sharing your insights on Les Mis. Thank you. That was my interview with Jim Carrey from The Left is Dead. Now, I know I just spent the episode ragging on the musical, but I do agree that the music from Les Miserables is very beautiful. I just wish that the artistic appreciation could be combined with, as my guest today put it, a revolutionary zeal to fight poverty and inequality so that nobody's life has to be ruined because they're poor and they got pregnant or go to prison for stealing a loaf of bread because they were starving. And on that note, I'm going to close this out today with a piano instrumental cover of I Dreamed a Dream, the song that Fantine sings when she realizes that the things that you and I take for granted are forever out of her reach. It's performed by Benny Martin Piano is being shared to the Creative Commons license. Until next time, I am the Pop Mythologist, and this is the end.